Galatians chapter number 4. I just want to read a few verses for you. Let's begin reading in verse number 4. The Word of God says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's read verse 4 once more. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You for the time and opportunity to be in Your house. God, I pray that You'd help us this evening to be surrendered and submitted to Your Word as it's applied by the Holy Ghost. I pray, Father, You knew each and every person that'd be here this evening. You know what our hearts need. Father, we've come here to meet with You, not just to have a service, but to hear from heaven, Lord, and to have You examine our lives and speak to our hearts. I pray that You'd meet each and every need. Do it in such a way, Lord, that would glorify Your Son, Jesus Christ, We thank You for Calvary. We thank You for the precious blood that was shed for us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, at this holiday season, there are a lot of things that can draw our attention away from the focus of this Christmas season. There's probably no other holiday that's been commercialized and materialized in the way that the Christmas holiday has. And one of my greatest fears for Christendom today, if I can use that term, is that we are beginning to lose sight of our biblical foundation, or if I could put it this way, the biblical prism through which we are to examine everything through life. Do you know when God saved you, He gave you a new pair of eyes? Now, it may still be the same eyeballs that was in your head, but when He saved you, He changed you in such a way that you could see the world in a different way. Now, how does that take place? The Word of God describes for us that we look into the perfect law of liberty. It is through the prism of the Word of God that anything is to be examined. And so at this time of the year, when we're focused on bows and candy canes and trees and Christmas gifts, and by the way, I'm not fussing about any of those things. I understand that's a part of our culture. But we need to understand what the true focus and the truth concerning the Christmas season really is. There are a lot of beautiful and wonderful doctrines in the Word of God, but the one we read tonight is central to the theme of this holiday season. Can I give you the Bible word for it? It's the word that theologians use a lot of times, and it is the word incarnation. The incarnation, literally that word incarnate means in flesh. It's described for us in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14, where the Word of God says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And lest we wonder who that is, God's Word is very clear when it says, "...and we beheld His glory." like is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, this Christmas season, it's not really about gift giving. I'm sure we'll all give a lot of gifts. It's not really about candy canes, but if some of us would be honest, we'd probably eat too many candy canes. Not really about seeing family, but if some of us would be honest, we'd see more family than we want to. Amen? What it's really about this Christmas season is the beautiful truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
This is something that is absolutely foreign to the world religious systems that, that exist. You know, I'll say this. The world is trying to convince us more and more every day that Bible Christianity is just a, another one in a long line of world religions. But you'll find that the more you study the Word of God, the, the broader the chasm will appear between Bible Christianity and any other quote-unquote religion in this world. You won't find any other quote-unquote religion that has an idea of an incarnation. Oh, it may be a prophet that was sent to mankind in other religions. It may be a teacher that was sent to mankind in other religions. It may be a religious leader that was sent to mankind in other religious systems. But only in the Word of God will you find this blessed truth that God became flesh for you and I. Now, that's a beautiful truth. I could Man, I'd just stop right there and preach. I'm not going to, but I could. I mean, just the love that God showed toward us when He died upon the cross. And not just upon the cross, but when He was laid in a manger, what love was manifest to mankind. And in these few verses, we have sort of a synopsis of this truth. And I want to give you four truths tonight concerning it. I want you to notice, first off, the planning of the incarnation. Look again at verse number 4. The Word of God is specific. Every word in your King James Bible is there on purpose. And it says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Can I say to you that the plan of God has always been a providential plan? It's always been a sovereign plan. Uh, it, it's not as though that the sending of Christ into the world was God's audible that He called. It wasn't the picking up of pieces that were shattered in the Adamic fall. No, the Bible teaches us that Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Calvary was not a mistake. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a diversion. It wasn't an audible. Calvary has always been the plan of redemption for mankind. And the Word of God teaches us that when Christ came into this world, He didn't come too early. He didn't come too late. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. You know, that terminology is very interesting. You'll find all through the Word of God the use of that terminology, when the fullness. It'll talk about the fullness of the times of the Gentiles, the, the, the fullness of iniquity and all these things. You know what literally it means? I like this. It literally means full till it's about to bust. Full until there's no more room. Full until there's no more time. And I kind of just imagine if you could see things through the eyes of God as He looked down on man and all of His depravity, God has given man every opportunity, every advantage, every possibility to see Him and to know Him. But mankind has through wisdom not known God. He's rejected God. He's pushed God away. And almost as though the wrath of God is swelling to a breaking point. Almost as though the, the wrathful hand of God can be stayed no longer... I you can picture, if you will, that God is at a breaking point with mankind. And then He sends His Son to step in and to intervene for you and I. It was the fullness of the time. We see in the planning of it that it was planned by a perfect sovereign. I mean, it was planned exactly like God wanted it to. It would astound you. And I, I don't listen. I don't have the smarts enough to really give you all the statistics. You know what they say, that 98% of statistics made up right on the spot. You've heard that, I'm sure. But uh, it would amaze you what statisticians will tell us about the fulfillment of Bible prophecy concerning just the birth of Christ, let alone the second coming. And by the way, I believe just as the, the first coming of Christ was literal, I believe the second coming of Christ will be literal. I believe just as every prophecy was fulfilled about the first coming of Christ, I look for every prophecy about the second coming of Christ to be fulfilled exactly as the Bible says it's to be. 
You see, God had it all planned out. This was the providential plan of God. God's perfect in all that He does. And listen, that, that's when you start talking about the sovereignty of God, and I do believe we have a sovereign God. I believe man has a free will. I believe God allows man to exercise his free will. I don't believe that man's free will traces on God's sovereignty or vice versa. I believe God's so sovereign he's not afraid of our free will. I believe God is so in control that he doesn't have to control to be in control. Is that right? Amen. I believe that's the kind of God that we have. And I believe that the plan of God has been a sovereign plan. I I can't explain to you how that every mistake that mankind has made, how that every wickedness that's been perpetrated in this world that we live in, I can't explain it all. But when you look at the spectrum of Scripture, it becomes abundantly clear that things happen just on time and exactly like God wanted them to. We see not only that it was planned by a perfect sovereign, but we see that it was planned around a perfect setting. If you study history, and you've got to be careful about history, because history is history, and it's not Scripture. Uh, the Scripture has a lot of history, and uh, any history in the Scripture is absolutely perfect, divinely inspired. When you go to secular sources, you have to be careful about it. But there are a few things that I think we're safe in, in studying about history. And we find that if you study history, that uh, the cultural and political and social climate into which Christ was born was tailor-made for the coming of the Messiah. The Roman Empire was at its uh, greatest power. And the Roman Empire, the Romans had allowed things and accomplished things that no empire before it ever had. I mean, the Roman Empire was truly a world empire. Not just the world that mattered, as many empires were before them, but truly a world empire. And uh, there's three things that the Romans did. And I know this is history, but I'll just say them and move on. But uh, there's three things. In Latin, they're called, first off, Rio Romana. That's the roads that the Romans built. You know, the Bible talks about how that uh, Caesar Augustus caused that all the world should be taxed. Never before in history could all the world be taxed in such a way. But because the road systems that the Romans had built, roads that some of them are still in use today, uh, there was a, a propagation of people and of travel that had never existed before. God was preparing this world for the Savior to be born in Bethlehem. Not only Rio Romana, but Lex Romana, the Roman law. Travelers were able to travel with a, a liberty that they had never been able to travel before. It becomes pretty clear when you uh, study the parable of the Good Samaritan how dangerous travel could be in that time. But with the Roman roads also came the Roman legal system. People had rights that they had never had before. And they had the ability and the liberty to travel and to be protected like they never had before. God was paving the way for these things. And then Pax Romana, the idea of Roman peace. The world had never been as stable in history prior to this. I mean, maybe the Garden of Eden, amen. Of course, I don't know. You go to the Garden of Eden, they mess things up pretty good. But uh, never had the world been as stable as it was at this time. What I'm saying is this. Everything was just right for the Lord to come. Everything was just right. It was planned for a perfect setting. And then I want you to notice that it was planned for a perfect substitute. The Bible says God sent forth His Son. You see, God knew what He was doing when He sent His Son into this world. God understood that His wrath could only be abated by the sacrifice of a perfect individual. Only through the divine dying for the human could the sin penalty be paid for. I've said this before and I'll say it again. You hear people say all the time, well, if you die without Christ, you'll die and go to hell to pay for your sins. No, friend, even in hell you won't pay for your sins. Your sins were paid for on Calvary. 
The righteousness and holiness of God was abated on Calvary. And your sin debt that you owe now, you don't owe it to the Father, you owe it to the Son now. That's why the Bible says that all judgment is delivered up to the Son. He's paid your debt, and it's Him you're going to have to answer to. It's Him that will bind a sinner uh, or command the angels to bind the sinner hand and foot and cast them into the lake of fire. For it's Him that's paid for their debt. It's Him that has bought them. Uh, listen, uh, the sinner, by dying and go to hell, even in of himself, cannot pay for his own sins. Uh, the sinner, when he dies and goes to hell, he dies and he pays for his sins eternally. I've given this illustration before. You know, we're, we're trying to sell our house and I think we got it sold. I hope. Amen. You pray for us. We hope. We got her if she don't jump. Amen. You know how it is with houses, and uh, I, the title folks called me, and they said, uh, we need to know about any mortgages you got. Have you got any mortgages? And I said, well, yeah, I'm trying to sell my house because I, I got a mortgage. Amen. <laughs> I, I thought it was a dumb question. She didn't think it was funny. But uh, she said, have you got any mortgages? I said, yeah, I've got one mortgage. Uh, you know, my, when I bought my home, I, I bought it on a 30-year loan. Whew, boy, that's long, isn't it? <laughs> 30 years, and uh, so we bought it on this 30-year But at the end of 30 years, we stopped paying for it. If we were to stay in our home, pay faithfully. At the end of 30 years, we'd stop paying for it. You know why? Because the debt has been paid. The debt has been paid. But the sinner that dies and goes to hell, he suffers. The Bible says that the smoke of their torment ariseth forever and ever. They'll never pay for their, their sin. The only thing that could pay for their sins was the precious Lamb of God. That's the only thing. We see the planning of the incarnation, but notice the power of the incarnation. Look at verse number 4. The Bible says God sent forth His Son. Notice the next phrase, made of a woman. We see the power of its method. We could never, never fully understand. I believe this is what Paul was talking about. You remember he said in Philippians chapter number 3 that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. I'll tell you what I believe Paul meant by that. I don't think he just meant, well, uh, I'm going to suffer because I'm going to know God better through suffering. No, that's not what I think he meant. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that Christ, though he was the captain of our salvation, though he was a son, yet learned the obedience through what? Through the things which he suffered. The Bible says that he might make perfect the captain of their salvation through suffering. That's not to say that Christ was imperfect. It's not to say that he was a sinner. We know the Bible is very clear that Christ was not a sinner. He did no sin. In him was no sin. And he knew no sin. But what it's saying is, is, is not merely uh, the idea of perfection and sinlessness. He was already sinless. But that word perfect denotes the idea of maturity. And I think the maturity that's being denoted is not necessarily the maturity of his character, the, but the maturity of our confidence in his character. You understand what I'm saying? The Bible says that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You know why? Because he was made of a woman. The Bible says it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a perfect high priest. You see, I know because of the incarnation that Jesus knows what I'm going through. It doesn't matter if I don't understand it. It doesn't matter if I can't find anyone that understands it. I know He was tempted in all points like as we are. I know that He bore our sorrows, that our stripes were laid upon Him. And I know because He was made of a woman, because He was incarnate, I know that I have a sympathizing and empathizing Savior. We see it by the method, but we see the power of its ministry. It says, made under the law. Made under the law. The Word of God is very clear that Christ lived a perfect life. 
It ama- Listen, you've got to deny the Bible to deny the deity of Christ. You've got to. Because if you believe the Bible, you'll believe the deity of Christ. You can't separate them in two. You've got to deny the Bible to deny Christ's sinless nature or to deny His deity. You've got to. Why did God do such a thing? Why did God do such a thing? The Word of God is very clear that mankind, even though they may have not known the law, even though they may have not uh, been exposed to the law, they may have not even been Jews, the Bible teaches us that the law is God's perfect standard of holiness and righteousness, and mankind has sinned and fallen short of that holy standard. God's holiness has been offended. His law has been broken, and the wages of sin is death. And the only way that that could be satisfied is for someone to suffer in our stead. That's the only way. You see it all through the Old Testament sacrifices. I was reading through the book of Leviticus again the other day and seeing in these sacrifices the beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior as the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb that was sacrificed for you and me. He lived a sinless, perfect life. And then all of that righteousness, all of that perfection, all of that sinlessness was taken off of Him and laid upon you and I if we'll come to Calvary. The Bible says, For God hath made Him to be sin for us, that we who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You know, that's what justification is. Justification, I, I hear people say all the time, and I know what they mean, and they mean well, and it sounds cute, but it's theologically wrong. Well, they'll say, justification is just as if I'd never sinned. I hear people say that all the time. And I know what they mean, that's fine, they can say that, I won't hit them with my shoe or anything, but that's really not accurate. You see, Adam was not justified, Adam was innocent. Adam was God's creature, but he was not God's child. There's a difference. Adam knew nothing of the new birth. Adam knew nothing of grace. All he knew was that he was created in perfection. All he had was a relationship of that between perfect creature and perfect creator. And he sinned and he fell and he was made unrighteous because of it. But you and I, it's not just as if I'd never sinned. For we have something greater than Adam had. We've been made a son. (laughs) We've been made a son. We've been made righteous. We've been made joint heirs. With him, we've literally were in him. I, boy, I love that terminology. Man, we had a field day when we was teaching through Galatians, and every time we we come across that, that I might be found in him. Paul said, "Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness of Christ, uh, righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Not having mine own righteousness. Well, whose righteousness then? His righteousness. His righteousness. I don't have to worry about the security of my salvation. You know why? Because I'm in him." And He's secure. And my sin uh, would cause me surely to fall, but it's not dependent upon my sin because my sin's been dealt with at Calvary. And I've been placed within Him. We see the power of its ministry. Look at verse number 5. We see not only the planning of the incarnation and the power of it, but we see the purpose of it. What was God doing through the incarnation? Verse number 5 says, Oh, what beautiful language to redeem. To redeem. Boy, we can just stop there, can we? To redeem. That's why God did what He did, to redeem. That's why Christ came, to redeem them that were under the law. He was incarnated that He might purchase us. That's what the word redeem means. It means to purchase. Some of you, if you call into these radio, I don't know, I've never tried calling into them radio stations. I'd sooner them keep the prize and me not have to be waiting on hold. Amen. But if you've ever called in one one of these radio prizes, they'll always say, well, be sure and hang on the line. We've got to get your information so that you can come down and redeem your prize. 
That means, in other words, that a price has been paid. And all that's needed is that it be picked up. The Bible teaches that Christ has redeemed us from our iniquity and from our unrighteousness. He has paid our price. Only through the incarnation could this have been accomplished. This terminology harkens back to Old Testament days uh, when someone had uh, loaned themselves, if we could put it that way, or borrowed themselves into slavery, when they had uh, put their life up for sale, as it were. And you know that's what mankind has done. God gave mankind life, but He chose death instead of life. And He enslaved and in bondaged Himself unto iniquity and unto the flesh. But Christ came as the perfect God-man, that He might die in our place, that He might pay that debt for you and me, that He might purchase us and redeem us. Notice, not only purchase us. I like this. Look at the next verse. It says, And because you're sons says that we might receive the adoption of sons. And by the way, that word adoption, we talked about that a little bit before, but that's, it's not adoption like we know of adoption. Uh, that's not necessarily implying that you're, you're not part of the family, but then you, you become part of the family. But it has to do with coming into a greater knowledge and awareness of your status. It says the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, He was incarnated that He might parent us. That our relationship with Him might change. It's hard for us to really fathom. And I don't know that we ever will. I I kind of imagine... You know, sometimes when you try to witness to people or or folks ask you about being a Christian, you know, you can do your best to explain it to them. But there's some things you just have to experience. Amen? Some things you just experience. And, and, I mean, don't misunderstand me. We can present clearly the Word of God and the Gospel to them. They can be saved. But I'm saying, uh, it's one thing to tell them. But if they'll trust Christ and and ask Him to forgive them and save them, they'll know what it's all about. Sometimes it's tough to explain something. And uh, You know, it's I, I think being an Old Testament saint, probably to really comprehend the difference, we would have just had to have experienced it. But there's no question that an Old Testament saint, though they were just as saved and just as secure as you and I, they didn't have the same experience of the Christian walk that you and I have. Notice again the language in verse number 6. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Now, if I study my Bible correctly, I find that Old Testament saints were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, as you study the Old Testament saints, you'll find the Spirit of God uh, is on them and underneath them and behind them and in front of them and beside them, on the right hand, on the left. But it's never inside them. This is something unique to the experience of the New Testament Christian and the new birth that takes place in the Word of God and in the heart of the sinner that accepts Christ as his Savior. This is unique. This is something the Old Testament saints did not experience. We're not just saints, you understand. We're sons. I know that the Catholic Church likes to really talk it up about being a saint. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, uh, there's always been saints. But now, since Calvary, I can not only be a saint, friend, I can be a son. And I'd a lot rather be a son than a saint. I may quit acting saintly, but whether I quit acting like a son or not, he's not going to disown me. That relationship will never change. The Old Testament saints, they did not experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, nor did they experience the the perpetual leading of the Holy Ghost that that New Testament believers can experience. Christ said, and I believe it was John chapter number 16, about that comforter that would come. He said, He will be in you and He will not leave you. He'll be with you forever is what He said. There's nothing you can do if you've been saved to unsave you. And there wasn't for Old Testament saints either. But the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we're sealed under the day of redemption by His Holy Spirit of promise. 
God did what He did so that we might have a closer relationship with Him. Not just that of a servant, not just that of a saint, but that we might cry out, Abba, Father, that He might answer, that we might experience that family relationship with God. First John, I think the grand theme of First John is that of the family relationship of the believer. The Bible talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1, it says that, uh, that these little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We may sin, but that doesn't change the fact that He's our Father, you understand. It doesn't change the fact that God is our Father, just as He's Christ's Father. He's our Father. Why? Because we are in Him. Oh boy, I, I'm having fun. I don't know if you are, but I am. Amen. We see that he, he was incarnated, that He might parent us. Let me give you a last thought and I'm done. Or I'll say that and not be. Look at the end of verse 7. The Bible says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What's the promise of the incarnation? What does the incarnation promise and guarantee you and I? Well, I'd say first off it guarantees us a new station. No more a servant but a son. Think of the grand paradox that you have presented before you. I, I mean, think of the beautiful nature of what God did for us. The sovereign became the servant so that the servant could become the son. The sovereign God of the entire universe, the Creator God, the Almighty, the One whom sinful man could not even look upon, robed Himself in flesh that man might be redeemed. And through, through His condescension, there's a coronation. Through His condescension, there's a justification. Through His condescension, there's an adoption and a redemption. Through His condescension, there's a change that's made. And now we're a son and not a servant. Then notice the promise of a new status. What does it say? Look carefully. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We now no longer have the relationship to God of that of a far-off follower. You remember at the foothill of Sinai? You remember what God told Moses to tell the children of Israel? He said, don't come near the mountain. Don't come near the mountain. It says that if anyone breaks through near the mountain, you better kill them. It says if any of the animals break through and come near the mountain, you better kill them because my wrath will be poured out if they get closer. In fact, as you study through the Old Testament, what you have is a perpetual resounding no to man's approach to a holy God. Over and over and over again, all the time when man seeks to approach unto God, God reminds them that they can't. Do you remember the plea that Job made? Job probably experienced more mystery in his life than we could ever fathom. Here's a man that served God, loved God, sacrificed for his children, eschewed evil, was upright in all of his ways. And yet God still allowed the things in his life that he allowed. You remember Job talked about, if I could just plead my case, if I could just go before the Almighty, if I could just speak to Him. And Job uttered this statement. He said, oh, that there were a daysman that could go betwixt us. You know what a daysman is. We don't use that terminology nowadays. But a daysman is a legal term, and it's that of a mediator. Someone that takes the part of both sides. <laughs> that takes the part of both sides that there might be reconciliation. Oh, you tell me if that's not Jesus Christ suspended between heaven and earth, 
He's left the earth that he might be closer to God, but he's hanging suspended in the air as a bridge between fallen man and Almighty God. Here he is. He's a hundred percent man. He's a hundred percent God. He's got God's interests in mind because there he's dying upon the cross to satisfy God's holiness. But he had man's interest in mind because he's paying their sin debt as the bridge between them and God. And now we're an heir of God. All through the Old Testament, you remember the veil that was between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. That was, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that the reason it was there, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest was now made. In other words, before the veil was rent, that, that veil stood there as a barrier between mankind and God. If you study the makeup of that, the, of that veil, the thickness, the height of it, the width of it, if you study the colors that were in it, they're all representative of Christ and His perfection. And that veil, that the Word of God says, the veil, that is to say, His flesh. His flesh. You see, Christ was the perfect standard. Christ was the one that epitomized all that God would require of mankind. And should that veil remain whole, And should his flesh never have been rent, he would have stood as a constant barrier between God and mankind. But upon Calvary, just as his flesh was rent, the Bible tells us that at that same time, that veil in the temple rent from top to bottom in twain. This signifying that the way into the holiest was now made. We don't have a second-hand salvation. We don't have a second-hand salvation. You ought to thank God sometimes that you're not in, in pagan darkness worshiping an idol. You ought to thank God sometime you're not in pagan darkness spoon-feeding milk into some idol's mouth somewhere in a third world. We've been justified and redeemed. We've been illuminated and enlightened through the Word of God. Our minds that were once blinded from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ have been awakened. And we now have been redeemed through Him. Why? How? How could it happen? It could only happen through the incarnation. Simeon called him a light to lighten the Gentiles. Christ said, I am the light of the world. The Bible says that the light came into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Some of us have family members, and that's them. They've been presented with light. The incarnation, the glorious light of this incarnation, the truth of the gospel has shined into their soul's eyes. But they've turned away because they love darkness rather than light. Rather than spending all your time fussing at them, you ought to spend more time praying for them. You're getting ready to come into this Christmas season. You're going to see them. You may not ever see them again. You ought to spend some time before you ever go to that Christmas dinner, before you ever go to open gifts, you ought to spend some time praying for them by name, praying for them, and asking God to give you the words and lead and guide you that you might be a witness to them. Because if it wasn't for the incarnation, it would be every one of us. Every one of us would sit in pagan darkness. Every one of us would sit unjustified. Oh, what a glorious God we have, don't we? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. 